you open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4? Exodus chapter 4 will be in the first uh, 20 verses today. You'll remember last week I mentioned that Moses um, asked five questions in, in Exodus 3 and 4. We'll get to this a little bit today, but they're more like complaints by the end of it. We looked at the first two last week. Who am I? And who, who is God? And these are legitimate questions that we need to all ask ourselves. But today we're going to get to the next three questions, where Moses is really working out what this call on his life means. And so let's pray. We'll turn to the scripture. Father, your word is life. Your word is food. We don't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this morning, would you feed us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you feed our souls with your gospel, with your truth, with your wisdom? So as we seek to follow you, we are are doing so in accordance with your will. That we would truly follow you, that we would truly worship you in spirit and in truth. Not just today, not just in this hour, but every day of our lives. Father, change us by your word this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him with the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people 
and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And you and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. And Peter's second epistle, 2 Peter, You've heard this verse before, but Peter tells us to make our calling and election sure. If you have a more modern translation, it may say, to confirm your calling. In this verse, Peter's talking about a couple of things. When we talk about God's call, his first and primary call to us is to be saved. He calls us unto salvation. But he also calls us to particular vocations in this life. He calls us to families the families that we're a part of. He calls us to the work that we do, whatever that looks like. He calls us to particular local churches. He calls us to the places that we live. So this raises the question, when Peter's talking about this idea of making your calling election sure, what does it mean to do that? How do I actually confirm my calling? That's the the driving idea behind Moses' conversation with God, the second half of it that we're looking at today. God has given him this this great call. He's going to be the redeemer of God's people. But for Moses, it's not so easy. He's looking for confirmation, confirmation of himself. But he's also looking for confirmation for the people that God has called him to speak to. Now, none of us is Moses, and we can take some comfort in that. You don't want to be Moses. But Moses is, is dealing with the same struggle that all of us struggle with. This this idea that we need to know what God has called us to. How can I be confident in God's call in my life? How can I have assurance of salvation? How can I know that I'm in the right job? How can I know that I'm picking the right spouse? That I'm raising my children well? Or that maybe I'm even ending my life well? How do I know, how do I have confidence in God's call? Today's passage is is a window, just a, a small look into how God answers those kinds of questions. And Exodus 4 gives us a framework for understanding how to heed Peter's call here to make our calling election sure. And the answer is this, that ultimately it's all the work of God. God confirms, empowers, and accomplishes our call. God confirms, empowers, and accomplishes our call. So we'll look at each of those in turn. First, God confirms our call in sign. God confirms our call in sign. Look at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Like I said, I've, I've been referring to Moses' five questions, but this third question, you'll notice, is not really a question at all. He's being obstinate. He's being prideful. He's, being, uh, re- he's rejecting God's call in his life. And so in chapter 3, he's, he's asking these kind of veiled questions about the, the possibilities. But now he's, he's making more blatant objections. He's objecting to the idea that God has called him. It's, it's flat out unbelief. He's not trusting God at this point. 
But God responds mercifully by giving him three signs, three transformation miracles. First, you have the staff that's turned into a snake and then turned back. Second, you, you see Moses' hand being made leprous and healed. And third, God tells Moses to cast water on the ground and turn it into blood. Now, you may or may not notice this, but there's actually a correspondent between, correspondence between those three signs and the first nine plagues in Egypt. We'll talk about those details when we get to it. But what you ought to notice now is that what Moses is experiencing is he's experiencing his own uh, time with the plagues. God is, is giving him a little taste of the plagues that he will uh, give to the Egyptians soon enough. But that does raise this question for us. What are these signs for? Why does God give the plagues to Egypt? Why does God uh, give these signs to Moses? And the answer is in verse 5. It says that they may believe that the Lord... The God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So there's, there's a biblical principle at play. The Bible always demands the testimony of two or three witnesses. So these signs are witnesses to what Moses has seen. Notice, in fact, God even gives him the first two. And he says, if that's not enough, here's a third. And the point of these signs is to validate the word of God. The word of God preached by Moses that he's received. They're a seal on Moses' claims. Now, it, it's interesting that God always does this. Anytime we, we see new revelation coming from God, there are associated signs. In the Old Testament, miraculous signs performed by the prophets to prove themselves. So we saw this a little bit in Luke, but Elijah does two important signs to validate his ministry. There's the baptism of Naaman the Syrian in the Jordan. And there's the resurrection of the widow's son, the widow of Zarephath. In, in the New Testament, we see sign gifts. This is really in the book of Acts, like tongues, prophecy, and healing. But those gifts always, in the New Testament, occur where the gospel is going out to a new nation. So they're associated with proving the apostles' testimony about the truth of their claims. Now, a lot of these miraculous signs, they're, they're tied to particular points in redemptive history. So we, we don't see people speaking in tongues today. We don't see uh, miraculous people performing miraculous healings today, but God also gives more ordinary signs. He gives covenant signs. In the Old Testament, you have the rainbow of Noah. You have the circumcision for Abraham. In the New Testament, we have the covenant signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But, but God also gives us things like the fruit of the Spirit, which are signs of our union with Christ. We also see the effects of the gospel in converting sinners and changing people's hearts. They're all signs for God to confirm our call to salvation. Now, what do we do with signs? We're supposed to follow signs. They, they point us to something beyond itself. So have you, have you ever seen someone, maybe you're going to, to Florida, and you see someone pull over at the Welcome to Florida sign and take a picture? When they're standing at that sign, are they experiencing the state? They're not on the beach, right? They're, they're not eating the seafood. They're just standing by a sign that's pointing to all that stuff. It, it makes for a fun picture, but those people aren't experiencing the fullness of what Florida means or whatever state you're going through. They need to get back in the car. They need to leave the side behind and keep driving. They need to get to the thing that the sign points to. And so this, this highlights the twin temptations for us. On one hand, we may miss the signs. The natural man, the man of flesh, is blind and deaf and dumb. We'll get to this later in Exodus, but 
The Israelites constantly received signs from God that he was working through them, that he was caring for them. But repeatedly, despite all these signs that they've been given, they turned away. And even after they received the land and they're experiencing the blessing of God, they continued to miss God's signs. They mistreated the prophets. They profaned the worship of the temple. They denied their God, all in the face of really clear revelation about himself. We run the same risk. We, we hear God's word preached. We hear it taught in Sunday school, in our families, in small groups. We see his promises in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're encouraged and exhorted and lifted up by fellow believers around us. But the temptation is to, to reject all those signs of God's presence and go our own way. And so the question is, do you see and believe God's signs? But the other temptation that we can get caught up in is that we can actually be too attached to the signs. We're like that family that pulls over by the Welcome to Florida sign and stands there taking pictures. Some people get caught up in forms. So recently you may have seen that uh, there was a Roman Catholic priest that was saying, we baptize you instead of I baptize you, and it invalidated a bunch of baptisms in the Roman Catholic Church. And so we would say the forms matter, but they, they only exist to point us to deeper realities. We don't want to get caught up on the details and, and be scrupulous about that. But some people get scrupulous in their own lives. They become fruit-checking fanatics. Instead of recognizing the grace of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they become so obsessed with their own good works. Am I doing enough? The solution to that kind of thinking is to move from sign to substance. To go into the thing that the sign is actually pointing to. We look for the sign, we find it, but then we look beyond. We take the exit. We look to Christ who purchased our redemption. We look to the promises of the word. We look to the God who gives us these things. Because in them, God doesn't merely show us some external things. He's actually showing us himself. And if we'll actually look beyond the signs and look at the substance of what the signs point to, we'll see that. So God confirms our call and sign. Second, God empowers our call by the Spirit. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So Moses has received these signs, but he's still doubting. He's like the Israelites. He's, he's missed the signs. And so his second objection has to do with his inability to carry out what God has called him to do. He's thinking, yeah, these signs are great, but if, if I can't speak clearly, what are these signs worth? This is more of an aside, but it's worth noting. When Moses says that he's slow of speech and slow of tongue, the word he uses for slow is kabod, which in an altar form, and the same word means glorious. The idea is it's heavy, weighty. And so, in other words, Moses is kind of unknowingly prophesying uh, about his speech. He may be physically slow, labored, and heavy, but at the, by the end of his life, he's making glorious, long, beautiful speeches that are part of Scripture. So that's just something to think about. But it's probably true that Moses has some sort of speech defect. Uh, some people think that he probably had a stutter that made his speech difficult. It's also possible that he's referring to some kind of language barrier. So you'll remember that he was, he was raised with the Egyptians. and He lived in Midian. He certainly knew Hebrew, but he, he wasn't speaking Hebrew on a daily basis. But either way, he's probably telling the truth. He probably really is limited in his speech. But how does God respond? We look at verse 11. 
The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with you, be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. So God invokes two things. First, he points out that as creator, he has power over God's mouth. But he also gives a promise. I will be with your mouth. Now we saw this in chapter 3, but that I will, once again, is God's divine name. But there's an interesting parallel in the Gospel of Luke, and you probably know this passage. Luke 12, 11 and 12, Jesus says, When they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So we're talking about speech specifically, but this extends to all areas of Christian life. Every good work we do is ultimately empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is how the Confession of Faith summarizes it. It says, the believer's ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be able for these good works, besides the graces that they've already received, there is required an actual influence of the Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do his good pleasure. You'll hear the, the scripture quotations there. Now, we talked about this a little bit Wednesday night, if you were with us. But there's this common idea that God's salvation, in the first step, is all God's work. Now, he gets us across the starting line, and then it's, it's up to us from there. After we've been converted, somehow it's up to us to cooperate with God, kind of work with him, and kind of like you're working with a counselor to, to grow and to get better. But that's not a biblical idea. When Moses spoke, it was not his words that he was speaking. It was God's words. When I or any other preacher stands up here, it's, we're not infallible like Moses, but if I ever say anything true, that's from God. If I ever say, say anything false, that's from me. But anything true, anything good in our lives is completely and totally a work of God. And the same extends to your discipleship, your evangelism with others, your conversations with others. Your success and your calling in this life, your vocations, has nothing to do with your ability. Any power you have to do good is not your own. It is the power of God working in and through you. Now, that should be free. Because as Christians, we're called to earnestly pursue righteousness. We're called to seek to obey God's law. But no, no matter how hard we try, we're going to fail. And you know this is true if you've lived the Christian life for any time. We have besetting sins. Our circumstances are complicated. Sin infects every area of our lives. But ultimately, we can put all of that aside because we have the helper, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ residing in us and lifting us up to holiness. He changes our hearts. He drives us to good. He sanctifies us. He makes us new. Paul of Philippians 2 describes it this way. He says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's our call. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God at work in us that actually fulfills our call. It's by his power that we're able to do what he calls us to. God empowers our call by the Spirit.
Third, God accomplishes our call in spite of sin. Look at verse 13. Moses' final objection. He says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. and He shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So here's Moses' final last-ditch effort to get out of God's calling. And you'll notice that God responds with anger. Now, it's, it's really fascinating that this is the first time in the entire Bible that God gets angry at someone. Even when he destroys the world and the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, the Bible never describes God as angry. But here, in Moses' final rejection of God, his anger is kindled. Now, that's a fearful thing. You know, we, something we say in our house a lot is that delayed obedience is disobedience. And Moses is working really hard to delay his obedience. And rightfully, that stirs up God's wrath. But what does God do? Does God strike down Moses? No, instead he responds with mercy. He actually responds by promising Moses help. When God sets out to do something, he always accomplishes it. We call this in Reformed theology, irresistible grace. If God has called you to salvation, you will be saved unfailingly. If God calls you to a vocation, you will fulfill that vocation unfailingly. To put it in biblical terms, no, no matter how far you run from God, there's always a fish ready to swallow you and to spit you back out on the land. In Moses' case, the fish that God gave was Aaron. So often people come to me looking for help discerning God's will in their life. For a lot of people, there's, there's this anxiety that I'm going to mess this up. God has this plan. God has a will for my life. But if, if I don't do everything right, I'm going to mess up God's plan. What I always point to is the fact that God is infallible. You are a sinner, and God knows that. He knew that from your very first breath. And it's part of his plan to actually redeem you from that. Every circumstance of your life has been meticulously planned and orchestrated, and there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing you can do to break God's plan. That doesn't mean that you don't have freedom. You're not a robot. But it does mean that God is working in and through your sins to bring about redemption. He works with your mistakes. He works with your problems. And in fact, the very problems that you encounter in day-to-day -day life are problems that God has given you to deal with, to teach you, to change you, to build you up. So yes, your sin is repugnant to God. Your sin kindles his wrath, just as Moses' sin did. But he has already poured all of that wrath out on his son. David reminds us in Psalm 30, his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love and his providence and his power are unfailing and perfect. 
And there is nothing you can do to change that. God accomplishes our call in spite of our sin. So consider your callings in life. Consider your calling to the faith, to your family, to your church, to your community. What is it that God would like to accomplish through you? And are you pursuing that? Are you responding to the signs that God provides? Are you relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to actually carry those things out? And do you trust God to accomplish those things, the things that he's called you to in spite of your sin? These are the things that God actually promises to us. Our role then is to simply receive and believe his promises, putting our trust in them. If you want to be faithful to your calling, you must be faithful to cling to God, to cling to the work of his son. In the words of Paul from 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever.